Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Bittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Knight. Recently, the press has been covering shortages on essential drugs like Ozempic. So what does the data say about why is this happening? Is it really the magic cure for weight loss? When is it ethical for a physician to prescribe a hot topic drug? And how do they explain both the rewards and the risks? We sit down with Dr. Heather Levitas, a fellowship-trained plastic surgeon with a special interest in advanced cosmetic surgery, and Dr. John Schneider, an associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine, to better understand today's prescription climate. So, John, I want to get into this overall idea that we are having these unprecedented prescription rates in the United States. You know, according to the 2022 IQVIA report, prescription drugs reached this sort of record 194 billion doses in the whole year. And it's an unbelievable, crazy number. And so why are we seeing this? Is it because doctors are prescribing more of specific drugs? Is there more demand? What does the data really say is happening here with these unprecedented prescription rates? Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's multifaceted. So you know, as a physician, when I'm with the patient, I make individual decisions. Does this patient need this? Does this patient need that? Et cetera, et cetera. So you aggregate that. And in the purest sense, you think, well, maybe there's two reasons. Maybe it's we have more and better drugs. And so physicians where they once may have said, sorry, I don't have anything. Go home and take some, you know, ibuprofen that we have more, which I think is true. We are seeing more innovation around pharmaceuticals. But there's also some data out of the um, Congressional Budget Office that shows one of the reasons that we're seeing a much higher prescription rate is that there's far more generics than there used to be, which has increased accessibility for patients that might not have otherwise had it. And so along with some changes in things like Medicare, you know, the cost of drugs even though we hear about these you know, huge spikes, there's a lot more generics, a lot more accessibility for patients. And so it's possible that more patients are getting drugs that they wouldn't have otherwise received, which is an interesting um, aspect of this. As to whether physicians are prescribing more, not totally clear, but I do think that um, with the aging population, you're also seeing a lot more chronic disease management. And as a result, living longer tends to actually increase the number of prescriptions that you have. And so that may also be playing a role. Well, Heather, let's uh, dig into this specific drug that seems to have been prescribed a lot, which is Ozempic for weight loss. And people believe it works, and we see it on social media and other places. Can you tell us more about the data behind this drug? Is it a magic cute and how, why suddenly it becomes so popular? So it's it's very interesting. I did not see myself becoming an expert by any means on any of these uh, semaglutide um, analogs, which is what Ozempic is. Um, but I see it quite often in my field as a cosmetic or aesthetic plastic surgeon. I would say probably about a quarter of the patients that I see on a daily basis are taking one of these medications, be it Ozempic, Wigovi, or Manjaro. Uh, Ozempic being the original medication that was FDA approved in 2017 to treat uh, type 2 diabetes, 
with Govi being a stronger form of the active ingredient semaglutide, which is FDA approved to treat weight loss in patients with at least one weight loss related condition, be that type two diabetes or high cholesterol or something similar. And then we have Manjaro, which is kind of like Vacovi, but from another company. Um, none of these medications are generic, hence we see the kind of exorbitant price tag that's put on them. Um, but, you know, a lot of these patients that are taking these medications now for weight loss are willing to pay whatever it takes to achieve their weight loss goals. So I see it very commonly um, in my practice. And really what, how the medication works or semaglutide works, which is the active ingredient in any of these medications, Ozempic actually has the lowest amount of the active ingredient in it. So it is the least efficacious uh, for weight loss when you compare it to the other two medications is, is what we see anyway. Um, it basically lowers uh, blood sugar levels by regulating insulin. And it also kind of tricks the body into thinking that you're fuller than you are by slowing down your gastrointestinal tract. So it leads to side effects like nausea, which comes with GI slowing and constipation. So a lot of the patients that take this medication are then in turn prescribed additional medications to treat some of these side effects, which is in turn, you know, contributing to probably a lot of the increase in prescriptions we're seeing because you take one medication and it causes a side effect that requires you to take yet another medication. So um, while I'm certainly not an endocrinologist or an expert at someone that would be prescribing these medications for diabetes, I do see them quite a bit in my practice. And as plastic surgeons, we're being asked to include the prescription of these medications to, um, in our practice to our patients. We've heard about magic weight loss drugs forever. Like I remember when I was in high school, there were these, you know, Dexatrim was the one that everybody was on. Do the clinical trials show that Ozempic works? Like, is this truly the, the cure for, for being overweight? So I think a lot of the data shows that this medication does work. And a lot of those old medications did work as well. The trouble with the older medications, like ones that contain, like Fenfen, for example, um, were cardiotoxic. I mean, the side effect profile was just not worth the benefit of the weight loss effect that the drug would have. And I think why people are calling these kind of a more miracle drug is because the side effect profile is more tolerable than some of the older weight loss medications that may have been efficacious, they just were not worth taking because of the damage it would cause to other systems. I see, that seems to make good sense. But this uh, uh, reminds me of a follow-up question here that you know has a, there has been a big debate about whether Ozempic should be prescribed to children since we have in you know obesity crisis in America. So the question is, should it? What what do the data say in terms of the uh, safety for you know children? That's a great question. So um, there was a retrospective meta-analysis published in 2022 that looked at several studies specifically evaluating the efficacy of these um, semaglutide analogs in children. And basically, once they combined these different studies together, it was about 200 children that they were looking at, or anyone under the age of 18, that um, had type 2 diabetes that was being treated with these medications. The meta-analysis did find that the medication did cause weight loss. Um, and the side effect profile in that study was not horrible. There was no serious episodes of hypoglycemia and other, no other serious side effects. However, we know that there is this kind of black box warning on these medications, warning patients against things like pancreatitis and thyroid cancer. 
There was a French study published just three months ago, uh, February of 2023, a case control analysis looking at about 2,500 patients that had thyroid cancer and matching them to their respective controls. And of these patients that were on these GLP-1 receptor agonist medications, there was an increased risk of thyroid cancer, specifically if they had been on the medication for between one and three years, which I find very alarming. Um, I think we need more studies looking at the incidence of some of these more serious side effects in these medications before especially prescribing them to children. That brings up a really important question about the ethics of this, because, you know, there's obviously the trade-off. Is it better to be 20 pounds overweight and whatever that can cause later on versus the potential of pancreatitis or thyroid cancer or whatever the side effects might be. So John, you know, from, from sort of this ethics perspective, is it, is it ethical that we're prescribing Ozempic to people? And, you know, in the same vein of ethics, it's causing this supply and demand gap where people who have diabetes can't actually get the drugs that they need, like, like Ozempic. So is it fair to continue using Ozempic to treat weight loss, given that it's really for people with diabetes and they can't get their drugs? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. So with regards to the side effects, you know, physicians have never been immune from this from the very beginning of prescribing medications, surgeries, whatever intervention that we have. There is a degree of uncertainty regarding what will happen. There is the uncertainty of efficacy. There's the uncertainty of side effects, the uncertainty of cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that, you know, prescribing it, and I don't prescribe this drug, it's not in my, not in my wheelhouse, but I prescribe drugs that, that have kind of the similar, you know, promise of, of cure or, or disease management. And it's an important ethical practice for all physicians to be able to say, we think this drug might be appropriate. It's certainly indicated for this. Um, but uh, there is some uncertainty around it. And there has to be, um, in, the, in the vein of shared decision-making with the patient and the physician, a, a, an honest discussion about what that uncertainty is, because in that discussion, you will find the kind of the ethical standard, I suppose, regarding what those side effects are and what, you know, how risk-tolerant is the patient and how risk-tolerant is the physician. Um, there's lots of interactions between patients and physicians where there's good conversation around these issues. And sometimes, um, you know, the worrisome thing is when patients don't understand what those side effects um, might be and it's not communicated well to them. But I think if it's communicated well, um, then it's reasonable to have that discussion. But uh, to the point of, of, you know, the potentially disastrous side effects like thyroid cancer, the medical community does have a, an ethical responsibility to truly understand what those side effects may be and be able to communicate that well. Without that data, we are, you know, hindered in that conversation. And the second question regarding the supply chain issue you know, we've seen this before. We saw it in the pandemic with uh, hydroxychloroquine. 
where patients who desperately needed it for their lupus and other autoimmune diseases were finding shortages because it was being used as a potential COVID treatment. And so ethically, we are always caught in medicine between the rights of the individual versus the rights of the many, because to really give, you know, healing treatment to patients, we'd love for all patients to have that, right? But once we start chewing up the supply of this for the purposes of weight loss, which frankly, we all know is not what it's FDA, well, at least Ozempic is not FDA approved for, it may be taking it away from diabetic patients who could actually use it. In one sense, that's, that's a hard question to answer because, again, you're fighting that many versus the individual. And I don't know that I have a clear answer. I think that physicians, though, should challenge themselves to understand whether there are, alter- there are alternatives to this, given that that drug may actually have significant impact for patients with diabetes. So speaking of this issue of uh, communicating with patients about the risk or the uncertainty, I, you know, I have a question for both of you, uh, both as a patient myself, as well as a statistician, you know, how we statisticians love to talk about uncertainties. But the, the question I have for both of you is that in your own practice, what do you find is the most effective way to communicate to the patients, like do you use numbers, use chart, use languages? And I tell you, just want to share one story because my physician uh, um, told me that I have to, because I'm reached certain age, he's recommended I should do this, you know, PSA, you know, for this prostate cancer screening test. But the way he described it to me, he said, you know, because the data are being so uncertain, so he's quoting this data, quoting the other data, he didn't say anything specific, but in the end, it was quite an extraordinary uh, conversation because you know, usually they will tell you like, you know, do it or don't do it. In this case, he said it was so unclear. He said, I would let you, you to decide, right? I let you de- de- decide whether you want to do it or not. At first I thought, you know, what kind of advice is that? You know, I'm not a doctor. I, I need your help to decide. But on the other hand, I think he basically communicated to me that the uncertainty is so large that, you know, the profession is unwilling to recommend one way or the other, which is itself is a pretty important message, right? So what can we do, for example? How do we educate the general public to understand these risks? Because they really matters when we make all these personal decisions. I can take that. Um, So I have an interesting perspective because everything I do is completely elective, which is sort of the case in the use of Ozempic, Manjaro, or Wagovi for weight loss. It's kind of elective. So I tend to be scary in my consults with my patients, and I do absolutely quote them numbers. For example, sort of the most dangerous procedure we do as plastic surgeons is an abdominoplasty. And there is literature, one of our white papers shows that there is a 1 in 18,000 risk of death from DBT, PE, and cardiac arrest. And I say it exactly like that in every single one of my tummy tuck consults. And I say, now you don't have to do this surgery. This is a risky surgery. These are the numbers, and this is what I do to mitigate that risk. But I need you to understand that this is surgery, and it's you don't have to do this. So proceed with caution. And they kind of look at me like with the steer in the headlights look. But then I think they always appreciate that I'm giving them kind of worst case scenario. 
so they feel fully informed when they're making their decisions. And I think the same should be done with the patients that are getting prescribed these medications. Look, these are the studies that we have as we have them. We don't have perfect data, but this is what we've got. And you need to know this before I prescribe this to you. I mean, as the patient, it's your prerogative to choose, but I'm assuming that you're understanding what I'm saying to you. And then we proceed from there. So I deal kind of all over the map in terms of my practice. I have some very elective cases like fixing a deviated septum all the way to cancer cases where we're taking out tumors. And the the challenge that I've found over the years is that numbers are very hard to translate. Even some of the statistics that we use in the literature in medicine of relative risk and positive predictive value um, and these types of metrics. Because to the patient, it's zero or one. If you have the complication, you have it. And if you don't, you don't. To understand that number, that kind of relatively amorphous number, is challenging because what does 30% mean to any of us on this call? We know that patients who are more risk averse are going to see a 30% that's much larger than somebody who's relatively risk neutral, who's going to see a 30% risk as being, you know, maybe smaller than that. And so my approach is, and I, and I think Heather's approach is fantastic because I think it's really, you have to present numbers in some way. It does anchor um, the discussion. However, I think that there's also um, creating a narrative for the patient about what that risk really means. And I think when we list the um, outcome, uh, like a bad complication or a side effect, and we put a number on it, we have to do that. I think it's really relevant that the patient understands that. But some patients may actually look less at the outcome and more at the experience of what they're going to go through in that narrative. And I think what's really important for a lot of clinicians, actually, is to listen to what their patients are listening for. Because even though we may say the thing that these are the risks, and I have a piece of paper, and it lists the risks, and it's the same every time. Each patient is going to interpret that differently, and they're going to listen for different things. And I think training physicians to be able to listen for that is very, very important. Talking about some of these drugs that we're talking about today, it can be um, really trying to understand why they want to do it. And that may lead to a discussion of alternatives that they may not have considered, given the risks that you've described to them. I'm really glad to hear you both talk about, you know, you need to give, give numbers. But, you know, I had another uh, experience myself. I suffered uh, kidney stones. Uh, I had a, quite a few episodes. And as one of them really remind me at a really kind of a coincident, coincidental situation. I was working on an article about individualized medicine. So I wanted to know when the doctor told me, I asked him, like, you know, if I don't do the surgery, what's the risk? Uh, you know, what kind of risk and what's the chance of risk? He said 2%. And uh, then I said, well, if I do the surgery, what's the complications of anything? You know, uh, what's the risk of that? He said 2%. Well, I said, well, thank you very much. Both said 2%. I cannot make a decision. But more, most importantly, what are these 2%? Are 2% of, of whom, right? Because, you know, are these people are my age, my situation, they had a kidney stone histories, or just kind of general populations, like how relevant it is to me, 
right? And in fact, the really funny part was later, I really waited. After six months, I was asking him, like, what data do you have if I wait for more than six months? He said, no, we don't have any data on humans. We have data on dogs. So the question then is, you know, would that be relevant for me? So the question I have for both of you, I know it's pushing a little bit hard for you, that as a physician, when you call these numbers, you know, what steps do you take to look into how relevant those things are for the patients you're treating? Because these numbers can be quoted all over the place, but may or may not be relevant. So I think I'm very lucky in my subspecialty um, in that pretty much all of the patients that we study are healthy, relatively young individuals. Um, so that sort of mitigates the need to d- divide them further, because if you are having an aesthetic procedure, you have most likely gone through a very stringent pre-screening process. I don't operate on anyone who smokes. I don't operate on anyone who has a BMI of over 32. I don't operate on, obviously, anyone even close to pregnant breastfeeding. I don't operate on anyone with hypertension or any sort of serious comorbidities, anyone with cardiac problems. So all of the things that would have potentially impacted the numbers that I'm quoting to these patients are, generally speaking, pretty mitigated. Now, if we're looking at things like race and gender, um, that may be, you know, sub-studies that could be done in the future to look more specifically at that. Um, But I think I'm fortunate in that the study populations that in plastic surgery we look at for elective procedures, we already have a lot of those confounding factors have been weeded out. So essentially, you're making these people already perfect, even more perfect, right? That's, that's I learned <laughs> exactly. what you're doing, okay? That's exactly that's perspective. Why these people look so great? <laughs> exactly right. You're correct. John, what's your take on this? Yeah, you know, I, so I, um, I, I actually deal in some very kind of rare diseases for which there are very few studies. And that's true for a lot of our colleagues across medicine when you're dealing with, you know, rare tumors or vasculitides or things where the studies have been relatively uh, sparse compared to, you know, cancer and some of these other kind of bigger studies or the heart, you know, Framingham heart study. So in that sense, you know, expert opinion still does play a significant role. And I think it's built a little bit into the training and a built into the professionalism of the field, I hope, um, in that the knowledge exchange that goes on with my colleagues and in my field where we can really understand, you know, what we've experienced, what our patients have experienced, and we still push. We still push for new studies. We still push for better data. But with the patient in front of me, I'm very honest about that. I'm very honest about the fact that we don't have a lot of data uh, on a particular a particular skull-based tumor, but we have a lot of experience with it, and we know what we've seen. And But it does still come back to that idea of it's even then harder to quantify, and it's even harder to easily put into a nice package that says, well, given these studies on thousands of people, we see an 8% chance of X. Uh, It's much harder. But I think that's where, you know, risk discussions merge with trust discussions. And the idea of the kind of maybe more the art of medicine in terms of gaining the trust of the patient in myself and my team, and letting them come to that trust that they're in the best hands. 
You know, I can't help, but you know, as, as you guys have said, there's these rare diseases where you don't have a lot of studies or there's something like Ozempic that's so relatively new that there aren't really any good studies. So, you know, for this drug that really is changing people's lives, you know, there's the side effects, there's the bad side effects and there's the risk of those, but there's also the bad things that'll happen if you are 40 pounds overweight, you know, and so it's weighing those. But, you know, what would be your recommendation? You know, is this something that we should be prescribing to people or do we need to wait? And more importantly, what studies do we need to do if we can't make that decision yet? What studies need to be created for the future that will answer that type of question for such a revolutionary drug like this? I think we absolutely need some longitudinal prospective clinical studies looking at the effects of these drugs in you know these larger populations and i think what needs to happen is studies need to be designed where we're following these patients for an extended period of time with systematic setting up of lab draws potentially ultrasounds of the thyroid and then this data needs to be collected somewhere centrally so that we can at least have some sort of information to be continuously analyzing as we learn more and more about the side effect profile of these medications. And so that we have, we can have these informed discussions with our patients. We can say, look, I mean, this is the risk of these XYZ bad complications happening, but I know there's also the benefits, you know, lowering of um, weight and all the things that come with being overweight, pre-diabetic and having high cholesterol and hypertension and arthritis in the joints and, and everything else that comes that comes with that. So I think some of these longitudinal studies need to be designed in and carried out. We certainly have the numbers. There's so many people that are on these medications. Um, that's not a problem. We're not looking at a rare disease like John deals with that I don't. <laughs> so that, you know, really that shouldn't be a barrier to conducting these studies. And to my knowledge, there isn't anything centralized. You know, I could be wrong, but um, I think that that needs to be done and, and carried out. Um, my read of the literature is some of the most comprehensive studies that we've ever had in medicine. And I mentioned the Framingham um, cohort in, in heart disease uh, out of England. I mean, these were massive studies, massive in their scope, uh, massive in how many people it required to actually conduct the study, and more importantly, massive in the funding that was necessary to get this off the ground. And I think it's worth mentioning that Medicine struggles a bit with this broadly, right? I mean, we have an enormous budget for the NIH, but it's required to be distributed over many, many different important studies. And how do we then get the, off the ground the type of study that we need to to really answer some of these very, very, very important questions? And it's, it's mind-boggling, actually, when you think about the fact that the millions of dollars, potentially billions of dollars that would be required to kind of like really make these types of studies happen on a more regular basis. It takes an infrastructure that is really quite large. And so I think that there's, there's a role for a discussion about that at a national level, interna international level, to see how do we really effectively protect our patients who want to go on the, any, any of these drugs or how do we protect them in terms of a certain type of surgery? It's, it's challenging. This surely will be a very, very long conversation, especially if we start talking about international, you know, the health system, different countries are very different, right? You know, U.S. is still relatively 
uh, in the advanced stage, right? So, but unfortunately, we have to wrap up this uh, um, wonderful episode as we always, uh, you know, come to this point. And we uh, always ask a, a magical one question. So I'm going to ask this one to both of you. That if you could create drug, and let's say this drug has no side effect, of course that's unrealistic, but let's say it's no side effect, that can cure the specific you know, disease issues, what would it be? Wow, um, that's a loaded question. Are we talking about holistically for the world? Are we talking about specific to me and what I see on a daily basis? <laughs> let's hear both. Okay, so um, obviously, holistically in the world, I think obesity is, you know, a huge issue. So I think if we can prove that, that these drugs are actually safe and don't have a side effect profile, I think something to treat obesity would be my pick. But I think specifically to what I do with plastic surgery, I think a, um, and honestly, honestly, I hate to admit this, but a, a medication that treats depression and anxiety that has no side effects and is actually efficacious would probably put me out of business. So, so, so maybe that. <laughs> I don't think you do yourself a lot of service there, Heather. I don't think oh. it's just, I... <laughs> She's being very honest. You know, we should respect that. No, that's a good take. Uh, I would personally love to find the magical topical nasal rinse that would help my sinusitis patients, uh, that would really, really help them. But I think globally, and this hits personally because of, of my own parents, but I think dementia treatment is probably at the top of, top of my list. Um, it's a sad thing to watch people um, lose their cognition in their life. Yeah, I hear you. And, uh, you know, as I'm getting older, I constantly get reminded people telling me, like, be careful with that. So I would certainly uh, uh, love to have drugs of such nature. Um, clearly, as I said, this conversation can go on forever. And uh, I have a feeling that if we ask, uh, you know, 100 doctors about their, their magical on one drugs, we probably hear like 200 different wishes because mm -hmm. there's so many issues so many diseases in the world and there's nothing more important in life uh, to have good health. So I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast, the liberty to thank both of you for what you do, but most importantly for coming to this podcast, I think the conversation today is really very educational to hear directly how you guys think about risks you know, and how to communicate with patients and those things help us. And certainly in my teaching, I always want to communicate to students how the statistics works and I, you know, I think your communication is much harder than mine because there's decision need to be made right away. So I hope that our uh, listeners will enjoy this uh, conversation as much as uh, we do. And I hope that there will be future occasions that we can get you guys back to talk more about advances, but there's certainly a lot more problems need to be solved. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.matpress.mat.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer, Ariane Winfrey. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Everything data science and data science for everyone.